Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right, Kellen, I think it's time for another edition of Let's Read an Awesome Review so that we can feel good about ourselves. Yes, let's. You got any good ones queued up? Yeah, I do. Here's one that says, best collapse commentary thus far. Finally, a sane voice in the community, blah, blah, blah. Wait, sane voice, are they talking about you or me? (laughs) Definitely me. (laughs) That sounds about right. I'm the sane one here. I'll, I'll quote this part. I can now share something with friends and family to share collapse ideas with them without sounding like a conspiracy theorist freak. Amazing. Followed by several exclamation points. You know, I've got lots of friends and probably some family that think I'm a conspiracy theorist freak. So I'm glad <laughs> that those who actually listen to the podcast may feel otherwise. We always appreciate the reviews, so feel free to leave us one if you haven't yet. It helps boost our visibility and I think also our self-esteem. And we could definitely use more of that. Right on. So in episode three, Kellen, the energy episode, you brought up a question about renewables and whether or not they could save us from going off of the energy cliff. And we talked for a few minutes then about some of the good and bad in regards to renewables. But honestly, I think the conversation deserves its own series of episodes. So today's episode is the first of a few that we're going to do specifically on the state of renewables, um, the direction that they're headed and our honest assessment on their ability to help prevent collapse. Today's episode is going to specifically focus on our use of renewable electricity. And before we really dive in, I think it's important to highlight some of the hopes around renewables. I think what people expect out of them or believe that they're going to do and how they're going to save us. And so I came up with three main hopes that I see people talking about when it comes to renewables, and they're these. 
So the number one hope that I see is that as non-renewables like oil and coal and natural gas become more difficult and expensive to find and produce, that renewables are going to allow us to keep our standard of living without having a decrease in our energy expenditure. If you remember, we've talked in the past about how our ability to consume energy is tied directly to the global economy. So without energy, we have no economy and no way to maintain our standard of living. So that hope and that question is, can renewables fill that gap? So essentially you're saying, can renewables cause us to continue living as if nothing has changed? Yeah, right. So as oil and gas go away, can renewables essentially take their place? The second hope is that renewables will heal the planet. So they'll stop or reverse climate change and allow our biodiversity to flourish again. And the third hope in renewables is that we can avoid collapse altogether and actually continue to grow exponentially in both size and standard of living sustainably. So while the first hope had to do more with being able to maintain our financial system and economics and things like that, this one is more of the thought that we can just continue business as usual forever and grow exponentially without collapsing. So we're going to come back to those three hopes multiple times, not just in this episode, but in the other episodes we do when when we speak about renewables. So keep those in mind. But from my personal research and my opinion, I believe that hope number one regarding renewables replacing fossil fuels without killing the economy is going to be very difficult to achieve, but I think that it may be possible. Hope number two, which was mitigating climate change, is very unlikely to happen in time. And number three, regarding our ability to continue to grow exponentially, I think that's just impossible. I want to make it clear that I think that renewables are extremely important. You know, I'm not in any way saying that they are not worth our time, nor am I trying to ridicule the development of the technologies around them. What I believe I'm saying, and the point that I really want to get across with these episodes, is that as a civilization, we cannot use renewables as like an excuse to continue business as usual, to continue growth at any cost, or to put profit over people. We can't continue to industrialize further without strict regulation, things like that. You know, if there's hope in renewables, it should be that we'll use them to decrease the amount of harm that we're doing to the planet. We should downsize our lavish lifestyles that we have in the West and use renewables to increase the lifestyles of those living in squalor. And lastly, I think we should be using renewables to give humanity any hope of surviving long-term, post-collapse, when sustainability can finally become an option again. You know, I'm really glad you break it down that way and highlight those three hopes because I think in general people don't classify all the context behind the question which is normally asked which is something just general like hey will renewables do the trick and it makes sense that depending on what outcome we're going for that's going to determine what approach we take and what's actually possible so just as an initial response I agree with what you've said but I'm excited to learn more about where your opinion on that comes from. Yeah, and like I said, I I feel like the work that's being done in renewables is vital. I just think that we have to look at it realistically and look at the reasons why we want renewables. If we want renewables so that we can continue to have this like unabated growth and, you know, have it all be about profit and gain and all, you know, all that, then it's not worth it and it's not going to work. But if we look at it realistically in a way that can actually better humanity, then I think it's time, energy and money well spent. So when it comes to forms of energy that we consume as a society, electricity actually makes up just a small portion at about 18%. Fuels for things like heat and transportation make up the other 82%. So, you know, when I think of energy, I do primarily, like, I picture electricity, the lights coming on and and all power lines and all that. But in reality, that's only, you know, less than a fifth of all the energy. 
And on top of just energy sources, we're also using for things like physical products, like lithium and batteries, sand to make glass, copper and electrical wiring, and things like that. So today, we're only focusing on the electricity portion. And it's arguably the one that we have made the most advances in, right? It's the one that you hear the most buzz around. And so we focus on it a lot. And specifically, I think we focus a lot on solar. So that's where I think a good place to start this would be. So I'm going to spit out a bunch of numbers. So brace yourself. But here we go. So every hour, 430 quintillion joules of energy hit the Earth from the sun. So that's not the amount of energy that the sun puts out. It's the amount of energy from the sun that actually makes contact with the Earth. A joule is a unit of energy with a complicated definition that I don't want to get into right now, but it's basically equal to the amount of energy that it takes to lift an apple about three feet. Huh, interesting. And I don't know if that's like, is that the amount of energy it takes to lift an apple three feet like while I'm holding it? Because then I have the weight of my arm included there. You know, there's a lot of, that's why I said it's like complicated. I don't really understand it, but I'm not going to try. Basically, Google told me that lifting an apple three feet is a joule of energy. So hourly, the sun's hitting the earth with that much energy times 430 quintillion, which is 430 with 18 zeros after it. For perspective, one gallon of gasoline contains just over 121 million joules of energy, one single gallon. So doing some scratch pad math here, you'll find that the sun hits the earth with about three and a half trillion gallons of gasoline's worth of energy every hour, which comes to 85 trillion gallons of gasoline per day. That much gasoline could power a 30-mile-per-gallon vehicle to travel two and a half quadrillion miles. So we're still here with these massive numbers. Just hang with me. You could drive to Mars when it's at its nearest to Earth and back nearly 38 million times. One day's worth of energy from the sun hitting the Earth could power a vehicle to drive to Mars and back 38 million times. So what you're saying is there's no lack of energy that's being produced, right, that's being sent to the Earth. Yeah, exactly. There's obviously ample amounts of energy. And those numbers are so huge, they don't really mean anything significant that we can understand in the way they've just been presented. What does make sense, though, is when you compare the amount of energy from the sun that makes contact with the Earth's surface with the amount of energy that we consume on an annual basis, which happens to be roughly about 430 quintillion joules. So in one hour, enough energy hits the Earth from the sun to power our societies and everything we do for a year doing some more crazy math, that means we would only need to harness about 1 8,760th of the energy we receive from the sun to power absolutely everything. That's 0.0114%. So now we're getting into numbers that are so ridiculously small that they don't really mean anything. But the point is, what you just said, Kellen, there is no shortage of energy that's available to us from the sun. It's just a question about whether or not we're able to harness, store, and distribute that energy in a way that we can use it. And one thought, as you say that, really pretty much all energy that we have is from the sun, right? Like all fossil fuels are the result of, you know, in the, in the case of oil, life forms that were living however many years ago that got their energy from the sun, right? And you think about like wind, that's a result of the temperature changes that come from the sun, right? Obviously, it's not the only source of energy, but pretty much all energy when we talk about what we use and what's made available to us, the sun is the source. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, even my ability to lift an apple three feet and expend one joule of energy, that's because I've consumed something that gave me that energy, right? And the plants that I consumed, that energy came from the sun, which allowed that plant to grow. I mean, it all does go back to the sun. You're exactly right. 
And so it feels kind of strange that despite all of that, we really use so little solar-powered electricity. You know, in 2019, electrical energy globally was only powered 2% by solar. And obviously, we're talking about photovoltaic, solar arrays, solar panels, that sort of thing. And so 2%, keep in mind, that's just electricity. So when we're talking about electricity being just 18% of energy consumption, then that means that we're talking about 2% of 18% of all the energy we consume. So that means that solar is only providing 0.36%, about a third of a percent of all of our energy. The other 99.64% is coming from other means. And those other means are basically just burning stuff, right? Yeah, so some of it is other types of renewables like hydro and wind that we'll get to in a minute. But most of it, yeah, is burning coal or natural gas to power the grid. So when you talk about 2%, you know, I've heard the argument that with only six doublings, we could power all electricity with solar. That's kind of the argument that a lot of people really optimistic about this make. And that makes it sound like it's so easy. Just double it six times and boom, everything is powered by solar. But keep in mind that that's just to fulfill our electrical needs. And I mean, if I doubled my age six times, I'd be 2000 years old. So exponential growth is really powerful and it makes things sound really easy. But to actually maintain exponential growth and create that is probably not so easy. And so that isn't to say that solar doesn't have a lot of potential or that it couldn't get there because I believe that it can and I believe that it does. It's just not going to be an easy road. Yeah, it feels like all of the work and resources just to get us to that 2% is monumental, right? So the the effort it would take to double that six times, I can see where that wouldn't be an easy task. But I guess my question is, is it worthwhile to pursue solar specifically that adamantly? Or are there other issues with solar? Yeah, and when it comes to the exponential growth of solar, like it is growing very fast, and it will likely continue to grow very fast. One of the things that I hear people say is, just like any other technology, you know, it takes a bit to take off, but then once it's adopted by everyone, you know, much like iPhones and things like that, that at first nobody really bought into, but then the price came down and it made more sense, and so all of a sudden everybody bought it. I get that, but the problem is, and this is getting to the other difficulties that you asked about, it's not just about adoption. There are logistical and economic issues that make solar have a real diminishing return on the investment. So the main one is that solar is intermittent, and so it requires storage, and that storage can be very expensive. So, you know, the sun isn't always shining, but it's not just night that presents that problem. Cloudy days, winter when the sun is lower, you know, areas of the world with shorter days basically mean that power has to be stored so that it can be delivered when there's a high demand. If you look at demand on a grid, the highest traffic comes in the morning when people are waking up, but then especially right around 5 o'clock when everyone's getting home from work. You know, they're turning on the TV, cranking AC up, they're cooking, they're doing their laundry. Well, during the winter, the whole day came and went, and by the time you're getting home from work at 5, the sun is already setting. So you're at this point of peak demand, and everything that every home is pulling has to come from some form of storage. So the most popular battery currently used to store solar electricity is just the lithium-ion batteries that you hear about a lot. And they have a relatively short lifespan of somewhere between, you know, 5 and and maybe 15 years. And so they're having to be replaced often, and that becomes increasingly expensive and less feasible. So let me just interject here, and we might be talking about different things. But I've heard at least with, like, electric vehicle lithium-ion batteries, they last more like 10 to 20 years and that they can then be repurposed, you know, for grid storage and and last decades after that. 
Yeah, and that might very well be the case. I think obviously it's going to depend on the type of battery that you're buying as far as how much money you're putting into it. Um, you know, obviously batteries designed for a vehicle are going to be designed very differently than for grid storage. So I think there's probably a lot of conflicting information out there, honestly, about how long these batteries last. And I'm sure they're getting better too. I mean, I know they're getting better. And so to be able to pin down an exact amount of time that a battery can last is hard to do. But I think the point remains, they don't last forever and they're expensive. So having to put that expense in up front and then having to do it again when they wear down and having that continually be a cost of replacing batteries at this point is unsustainable. And what's interesting is that the cost of solar doesn't increase linearly with the percent of the grid it's powering. This is really interesting to me. So as an example, if it costs a billion dollars to power 10% of a state's grid, you can't just multiply that by 10 and say it's going to cost $10 billion to power 100% of the grid. The growth in cost is actually exponential. In California, for example, a study's been done that shows it would cost $49 per megawatt hour to power the first 50% of the grid with solar. But to get it to 100%, it would drive the cost per megawatt hour up to $1,612. So getting the same amount of power out of the solar would cost 33 times as much as you made your way from 50% to 100%. That's because for half of the year, they could power most everything with the sun that they were receiving day to day. They wouldn't need to store that much. However, during that half of the year, they would also have to be producing and storing power for the second half of the year when there's not enough sunlight. And the costs for that second half of the year are what caused that exponential growth. So in this study, they said that the cost for California to be completely powered by renewables would be $2.5 trillion, which would raise utility costs for homeowners and tenants to basically you know, this laughable, impossible rate to pay. You know, and we're talking about a relatively sunny state year-round in a wealthy nation that's more likely to be able to afford these type of upgrades. You know, imagine in places in the world where winters are longer, they have less sunshine, and especially in poorer nations where, you know, a coal-powered plant just makes way more economic sense. So I don't mean to always push back and kind of challenge what you're saying, but with those costs, I do know that just in the last, you know, decade and a half, the cost of lithium-ion batteries has gone down significantly like 75% or something like that. And I know the technology keeps getting better, right? They're lighter, they're more energy dense. And so that doesn't totally offset everything that you've just said, but I think we're making a lot of advancements that will be helpful. Yeah, I, I agree completely. You know, the technology is changing. It's growing rapidly right now. Things are getting cheaper. You know, at this point, it's just a question of the amount of time that it takes for it to come down enough to be economically feasible. And then there are other questions around, you know, the materials. Lithium itself is a non-renewable resource. So while solar itself is renewable, the lithium to store it isn't. And just like anything else, as it gets harder and harder to find and produce as the EROEI of it goes down, the cost of it has to go up. And so while I think the, the cost will continue to decrease, in my opinion, at some point that has to halt and then reverse. So is it sustainable long term? No. But they're also doing a lot of research into different battery types. Right? So maybe they'll move away from lithium and, and they'll find something else that's much more efficient and hopefully even cheaper. So I'm definitely not saying that it's not possible. Again, going back to hope number one, that we can power everything with renewables, that it's possible. I do think it's possible. Uh, I just think that it's going to be a tough road to get there for sure. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, 
and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sure. So knowing that we were going to be talking about renewables, you know, one of the things that I've heard is that the energy is there, right? And you mentioned that right from the start. The sun is giving us so much energy. There's all these other types of energy as well. It's not that we don't have access to the energy. It's just that because renewable sources of energy are intermittent, we can't cause them to be produced right when we need them. The biggest obstacle I've heard that we have is storage. So I looked into different ways that we store energy. So there's pumped hydropower, which is the main one. There's hydrogen storage, compressed air energy storage, thermal energy storage. Right? There's all these different things. When it comes to batteries, there is a lot of hope in batteries because, like I mentioned, the costs are going way down. The technology is getting better. But from what I learned when I looked into it, the main issue is that we are just so far behind the eight ball. Like just to manufacture enough batteries to be able to store the kind of energy we need to store right now, like the the task at hand is pretty much insurmountable. And then with the way our population keeps growing and all the people that will be living in urban areas in the coming years, it's like we would just have to produce thousands of these battery manufacturing facilities, you know, similar to what Tesla with the Gigafactory has tried to start doing. Yeah, it feels insurmountable. And just to throw some more numbers at you, of all the electricity that is delivered in the United States, 97.5% of it is on demand. Coal, natural gas, it's produced right when it's needed, sent to its destination. Only 2.5% comes from storage. So that in and of itself is like, wow, we're a long way off from having the amount of storage that we need. But of that 2.5%, you just brought up pumped hydropower. That actually powers somewhere between 94 and 96% of that two and a half percent. So again, just crazy low numbers. We're talking about somewhere around four to six percent of that two and a half percent is actual like battery storage, like lithium ion batteries. And you mentioned a couple others like hydrogen storage and compressed air storage, and those are in the equation as well. So the actual amount that comes from batteries is a minuscule number. And it's not that we have to store everything with lithium ion batteries. There are other renewable things like hydro and hydrogen. But just looking at the scale and the minuscule amount that's currently being stored, it, it's a little discouraging. And again, I'll say it for like the third time, I don't feel like it's impossible, but we've got a road ahead of us. And climate change is coming at us fast, right? So we're kind of on this crash course and we got to get our act together if we're going to make it happen. You know, not to take us really on too much of a tangent, but when I was in like third grade, I remember my teacher kind of inspiring us and saying, if you want to be the wealthiest person in the world and make the biggest impact of anybody that's ever lived, then find a way to make it so that we can power our cars and everything else without needing to use fossil fuels. And I remember I went home and I was like, 
wow, I maybe I can do this. And I thought it through a lot. And I got out my Legos and I basically made a little car and I put a magnet on the back and kind of had like a little stick with a magnet that I thought would push against it, right? And would make the car move forward. And I was so bummed out that even though the magnets were rejecting one another, the car was just sitting still, right? There were a few laws of physics that I wasn't familiar with at the time. That was the end of Kellen's engineering degree. (laughs) That's when I gave up on all hopes and dreams. But it's interesting to find out over time that there is so much non-renewable energy, and yet we have this issue with storage. And when I've looked into, like, why is the storage part so hard to figure out? It's like, yeah, there's this way that we can store energy, but you have to have the right terrain, and it's a big construction project. costs just a lot of money and isn't very easy. Or you've got this way to store energy, but it takes a lot of space, you know, or this way, but it's just not very efficient. This way, it's not very scalable, right? It seems like we're coming up with more and more ways, and they're all good, There's ups and downs to each, but at least so far, we just haven't cracked the code on being able to store energy in a way that is cheap and scalable and efficient and meets all the other qualities that we need. And maybe I just need to be more optimistic and be like the people that say, I'm sure they'll think of something, right? Like, it's going to happen. But I just try and look at things realistically. And I think, unfortunately, like the biggest part for me is that in the end, even if we were able to power everything with renewables, will it happen in time? And are we just going to use it to keep growing unsustainably to a point where we collapse anyway? So you had mentioned hydro. So I think let's talk about hydro for a minute. Dams are actually a much more significant portion of electricity generation than solar, currently at 6.6% in the U.S. and 16% globally. So 16% of all electricity generation comes from dams. And when you look at all energy generation globally, not just electricity, hydro makes up about 3.6%. So that's about 10 times the contribution of solar. So you think like, all right, now we're talking, we've got this awesome thing that's been so successful, let's scale that sucker up and forget solar, let's just do hydro. But unfortunately, it seems that hydro doesn't have much room for growth at all. A recent study done for the U.S. Department of Energy found that there was going to be virtually no growth in hydro production from 2010 to 2040. They did discover that there were additional streams and rivers that were physically possible to dam, but economically, and also due to policy and environmental issues, it simply wasn't feasible. Hydroelectricity is a mature technology by now. It's something that's been around for a long time, and so the beneficial dam sites have already all been created. So basically, we've hit and passed the point of diminishing returns. Globally, there are a few projects underway or planned in China, but other than that, hydroelectric production is expected to remain pretty stable with little to no growth. So you combine that with the fact that dams don't last forever. Like batteries, they have to be replaced You know, they require expensive maintenance, which honestly, most countries have failed to keep up to standards. We've said this before, but in the U.S., infrastructure has scored a D plus on infrastructure maintenance, and that's done by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Dams specifically are rated at a D, so not really any better. On top of that, dams release greenhouse gases. They destroy ecosystems and habitats. They're actually a cause of sea level rise. They waste water and they can harm local communities, misplacing people. So it kind of begs the question that even if there was room for growth and adding more hydro, 
should we? Would it be better than coal and gas? And I think to the point that we would have to use it to go completely renewable, the answer is no. But on that note, you had brought up that you had done a little research on pumped hydropower and that form of storing energy. So maybe you could explain a little bit how that works. Yeah, like you said before, it makes up the vast majority of how we store energy. That said, most of the energy we use, we're using in the moment, we're burning stuff. So it's only a small percentage of that, right? But it's a it's a cool idea. Basically, you think of typical hydropower, you've got like a natural source of flowing water and you put in a dam and when you need energy, you open up the spillway and the water flowing through turns the turbines and gives you energy, right? With pumped hydropower, it's similar, but instead of just having the reservoir above, you know, the water that's been dammed, you also have a reservoir below that catches all the water that comes through. And, you know, like you mentioned, in the evening at 5 o'clock when everyone's off work and that's when there's the peak energy consumption, they can let the water run down through to generate more electricity. But in the middle of the day, when we're getting the most solar energy, that can be used to pump the water back up to the top. So it's a really cool idea, and it's effective for storing energy. But similar to what you mentioned with just creating dams in the first place, there's only so much that we can do that. It takes a lot of money, right? That's a big project, and it has to be done in just the right spot. So it's awesome. It's innovative. It's something that we've been doing for a long time now, but there's not a ton of opportunity to grow. Yeah, and where it's currently at only you know, 2.5% of all electricity generation comes from stored electricity. Even if we doubled the amount of pumped hydropower, we're still only talking about 5%. So no matter how you look at it, the numbers stay too low. So let's talk about one more really briefly, and that's wind. Um, Wind power is responsible for about 5% of global electricity. So to put these in order, we've talked about hydro, which is 16% globally, Wind is 5% globally, and solar is at 2% globally. Altogether, those three make up about 23%. And if you add in others like ocean currents and energy that's brought in from waves and biofuels, the total right now is about 26% of all electricity generation is from renewables. Wind is similar to solar, though, in that it's intermittent. Obviously, the wind isn't always blowing, and the same batteries are needed to store wind power as solar. Wind turbines are also huge, right? And they often require mountaintop removal, which can disturb ecosystems. And wind, just like every other type of renewable, has its own material cost to manufacture, much of which comes from fossil fuels. So when we talk about like photovoltaics in solar panels, it requires a ton of quartz, which has to be mined and is a non-renewable resource. We're talking about, you know, concrete being poured for the bases for the wind turbines. We're talking about fossil fuel intensive processes to transport those massive blades and to construct the turbine in the first place. Manufacturing, transporting solar panels, the concrete involved in building a dam. You know, we have a long way to go before we can actually really call green energy green. And the amount that we have to scale up and the fact that we have to continue to replace all of these things just means that we're continuing to emit more greenhouse gases, we're continuing to use more fossil fuels, and we're continuing to disturb ecosystems. Yeah, you know, as I go and look at like articles about renewable sources of energy, I see them laced with a lot of hope. And honestly, I think that's well-placed, right? Rightfully so. But I think it's similar to, it made me think like if you are stranded on like a desert island and you are just shriveling up in the heat, right? And you are dying of thirst. Somebody comes to you and somehow you come across 
a few tablespoons of water, you're going to be really excited about it, right? And it is something that you should be excited about. But again, going back to what I talked about before with just what we would need to manufacture and produce and all the resources that would need to go into making it so we can store the, the energy that we use, I think renewables are awesome. I'm excited for where they're going, but I agree with you that perhaps we're just too late. And all of this, all of these challenges, all of the obstacles we face from the perspective of what we talked about today is to get to a point where we could just power 18%, right? Which is what electricity is. The other 82% is a whole other challenge that we're going to talk about in other episodes. That other 82% that's not from electricity, that is from fuel sources. And I think we have even more steep challenges when it comes to those. So to kind of end here, going back to the timeline, you know, when you look at the goals for when the U.S. will become 100% renewable, those are set mostly for 2050 and later. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned those kind of three main hopes in regards to renewables. I said the first is going to be very tough, but possible. You know, I think that things will gradually become more and more renewable. I think eventually capitalism will ensure that renewables climb at, at least close to the same rate as fossil fuels are falling. We have a lot of oil left in reserves, but it is going to get harder to dig it out. And as it gets harder, I think investments will shift from oil to renewables. Capitalism is going to do everything possible to succeed and survive. And so I think it'll make sure to do everything it needs to to keep the economy afloat so that capitalism can continue. I think that could be frustrated by like really sharp or very rapid decreases in oil availability in some or all parts of the world. You know, if there's conflicts or if world powers who run oil embargo it and things like that, then we could see major problems. But if our overall decline in oil production is steady, then I think it'll be possible that we could have an overall increase in renewable energy to match it. Regarding hope number two, you know, the healing of the planet, when you consider the damage that fossil fuels have done already to the environment and the 1.3 degrees of warming we've already endured, and the fact that somewhere between one and a half and two degrees are already baked in, no matter what changes we make, and then you tell me that our most optimistic goals for going renewable is around 2050, and it just seems like a stretch to think that it'll happen in time to prevent us from hitting three degrees, four degrees, you know, above the baseline. Still, I think, you know, it's possible. Can we mitigate, stay somewhere around two and a half, three degrees? Like, I think the chances of that are so low, but I won't say that it's impossible. Lastly, number three, that renewables will allow us to continue to grow exponentially is just absurd. We'll talk more about this in the coming episodes, but it's basically that idea around limits to growth. Like maybe, maybe we have enough energy to get by and continue growing, but do we have enough water? Do we have enough food? Do we have enough land? Did we mitigate climate change enough to keep the massive disruptions of the resources that are expected? Did we prevent the conflicts between nations that climate change will cause? The political turmoil and dissatisfaction of people against our governments? Did we stop destroying the biodiversity and natural habitats all just because solar and wind succeeded? No, I don't think we did. The challenges and problems that come with growth are in part energy, but having enough energy isn't the solution to it all. Well, the way you just summed that up was a good reminder of how depressing all of this is. But it has been insightful for me to learn from you about this topic. And I know we've only just touched on the surface. It really makes me want to do a lot of research and learn more about everything that we've talked about today. But I also know that as well informed as you are, and as much as you study on these kind of topics, you're not an expert. And obviously I'm not either. So for me, I would love if there's anybody out there who is more informed, who really knows their stuff on this topic, if they'd share their thoughts. And I know 
you and I, Corey, would both be happy to include that in future episodes. Yeah, I've said it a hundred times, and I'll keep saying it. I am by no means an expert in any of this. I'm just a dude who likes to talk about it. So, yeah, like Kellen said, if there are experts in this listening, and we've either gotten something wrong or you have something else to add, we'd love to hear about it and maybe even include you in the show and do some interviews on this topic in the future. So thanks for listening. You know, kind of referring back to the review that we read at the beginning of the episode, we're happy to know that people feel comfortable sharing this and hopefully it allows you to present some of your beliefs and thoughts in a way that doesn't make you sound crazy. And so if you feel comfortable, please do feel free to share with friends or family and continue to leave us awesome reviews because it is very much appreciated. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.